this is another great part of the show. Darren scrolls through Twitter while mumbling. Um, camera films. Frog tongues. Acting up to fish. Frog tongues. Permian bears. Uh, Jurassic World. Liam Neeson's daughter. Uh, True Grit. Hook Island Sea Monster. T-shirts. Sea Monsters. Tyrannosaurs versus bees. What? Back from the woods. Trunk protrusion in frogs. Car wrecks. Georgia. Pigs. Vaccinating your kids. Fossil anchovies. Welcome to episode 39 of the world-famous Tetchworld's Orgy Podcasts. <laughs> Podcasts, Darren Podcasts. Podcasts. Uh, hello, new listeners, bringing us up to 2.7 million listeners. <clears throat> I'm Dame Kira Takanua. <laughs> Who's that? Dame Kira Takanua. That's you, that is. Famous Maori opera singer lady. Oh, right, yes, okay, yep. Yeah. And I'm Lucy. Ah. <laughs> and in this episode, first of all, we've got some follow-up from last time. F.U. F.U., Darren. F.U. incorporates <laughs> Cow and Keezy Corner and Thomas Darren of previous episodes. Um, got to keep some, like, consistency in us here, haven't we? Yeah. We also got some exciting news from the world, <laughs> from the world of John, Darren and John. News from the world of news. Some thrilling cash for questions. Popular tat. What we? What? Uh, are we talking about? <laughs> are we we're, talking about? We're going to talk about Lucy. We're not going to talk about the grey. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like what I read about the grey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I think we should talk about the grey one one time, but not this time. Maybe we. Oh God, rewatch it. Can we rewatch it? Well, I have. Done I could probably read about it. Uh, yeah. So, but no. Let's let's do Lucy because we've, we've both seen that more recently. Yeah, <clears throat> and I've seen it a couple of times again. Don't <laughs> know <laughs> how you do it. I bought it on DVD <laughs> to remind myself how bad it was. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so let's begin with. Uh, we've just been talking about pterosaur wrists and sesamoid bones, but people don't want to hear about that, do they? Yeah. Um, Fu. Have you got any Fu from last time, John? Uh no, I haven't been looking. Okay, well, I, I, I'll tell you what I, what you got wrong last time. Oh, what I got wrong. There was a bit where, where we were talking about um, the fact that so, so many people don't seem to know today that birds are dinosaurs. And when I was saying, isn't that common knowledge? And then I said something about the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun. And whatever I said, I got it the wrong way around. And it would have made, I can't remember exactly what my point was. It was a long time ago. But it would have made a lot more sense if I'd said, you mean the Earth goes around the sun, not the sun goes around the Earth, right? Because yeah. Yeah. of heliocentrism and all that. Yeah. Uh, in the enjoyable discussion about one of my favourite movies, Rio, Rio. Yeah. which I'm a huge Duran Duran fan, so when I think of Rio, I think of, her name is Rio and she dances on the set, mm-hmm. just like the river going through a dusty... Right? But it's actually that awful, awful film... Um, I think that I wrongly said that the main uh, uh, the main 
protagonist. No, the, the main baddie in Rio is, uh, I might have said a McCaw. That's the antagonist. Yeah, the antagonist. <clears throat> That's um, channeling Red Letter Media Guy. What's his name? Oh, some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. You know the Red Letter Media Guy? No. The, the brilliant... Uh, uh, I, forgot, I can't remember his name. Okay, we'll come back to that next time. Um, the, the, the baddie... Okay, the main characters in the movie Rio, they're blue macaws but they're meant to be Spix's macaw, which is like, you know, super endangered, famous macaw. But I understand the word Spix, the term Spix's macaw is used once in the film. So it's not exactly a kind of, you know, thrilling and resounding endorsement for the conservation of this endangered species. But the baddie in the film Rio is a self-accrested cockatoo. And I think I got that wrong. Okay, that's enough, more than enough time on Rio. So we move on. Yes. So that's FU. That's FU. Right. News from the world of Darren and John. <laughs> now, Pat's it written in big letters. Fish written in big letters. So I'm currently working concurrently on three books. And I'm going mad. <laughs> um, so the giant textbook is still there. And uh, those who follow me on Twitter and friends of me on Facebook and stuff will know that I've just been been adding lots of rafe and fish to uh to the rafe and fish chapter but also took a break from fish and went and dealt with bats bats because bats have got a rich fossil record i like bats uh fascinating animals and um and i decided to start you know share the love let's talk about bats mm. on twitter so i went onto twitter no i think i got this wrong way around did you go on twitter no you did <laughs> you went on twitter you you your first you were the first with the bat fact so I was sharing some insightful and interesting bat facts. I possibly ha- hashtag bat facts. <laughs> you did. And then <laughs> along came John. <laughs> and hashtag bat facts is now a thing. Yep. Right. And now let's scroll down as far as we can go. Uh... No, we've gone back to October last year, which is probably not what I wanted to. If you go on Twitter and put in hashtag batfacts, you'll find some fascinating facts, in inverted commas, <clears throat> about bats. <laughs> Should we read some of them out? Well, okay, so let's go with one of my first, my first ones, which is, um, yeah, bats are just the... <laughs> Bats are just the adult form of my, mice, rats, and other rodents, and only live for three days. Hashtag bat facts. So you can see, they're pretty useful things to know about bats. I think that might have been the first one, the first one you, the first one you preferred. <laughs> then we had, now this is, this is difficult to read because they're into, as John and I have already established, they're, um, they're interspersed with actual bat facts and also facts about Batman. Yeah. Uh, so there are okay. This is from you, bat facts. There are over eight species of bat, <laughs> <laughs> which, if you think about it, Darren, is actually true. And then there's a follow-up one, which is I thought it was over nine. <clears throat> uh, this is from our friend Ethan Kosak, black mud puppy. Black mud puppy. Megabats are directly descended from prosimians. Microbats are descended from voles. <laughs> 
and so on. and then it just carries on and on batman was a bat human hybrid created by bat scientists in response to the thrush human hybrid created by robins <laughs> ghost bats are actually vampiric or vampire bats are actually spectral <laughs> uh the verb bat refers to the use of bat wings in batting away bats. The bat, the bat used in sports is actually an unrelated acronym. <laughs> uh, that's from me. Yep. Keyboards were originally supposed to include a bat key. It was replaced by the tab key due to a spelling error. Real, real bats live in America. All others are holograms or animatronic. Bats evolved from cats. The distal points of the C eventually merged and formed the lobes of the B. <laughs> Yeah, the average adult human male has seven pounds of bat <laughs> in his large colon. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's do some more bat facts later. We'll come back to bat facts. Yeah. But are we also going to talk about hashtag build a better fake theropod? Uh, yeah, I was not involved in this ha- hashtag. Okay. Hashtag build a better fake theropod. So now we've already spoken at a great length about Jurassic World. So we probably, I don't think we should talk about it at great length any, any more. Oh, pl- please, God, no. no. So the, the, they've released the second trailer. And uh, <clears throat> of course, those of us interested have been saying pretty much the same stuff. Like, you know, the animals look l- lame. We see a lot more in the trailer of... The kind of genetic chimera dinosaur that they're meant to have cooked up in the lab, which is, I think, called Indominus Rex. (laughs) Indominus Rex. And we know what it looks like because they've already released toys and merchandise that feature it. And and it's lame. It's just it's just draw a crappy cartoon theropod that's got four fingers and a big head and teeth. And you've done it, basically. That's it. It's awful. So, um. Brian Eng of Don't Mess With Dinosaurs dot com and the creator of the uh, is it Earth Beasts Awaken um, videos, which we've definitely spoken about before and are really awesome. I think it's Earth Beasts Awaken. <clears throat> Brian uh, started hashtag build a better fake theropod and just started doing these really awesome sketches of like you know imagine can you imagine how cool it would be if they actually had this and you know sort of some imaginary theropod that's like you know based on real theropods but is like a genetic chimera com- combining features of different animals and and this kind of ran and ran and ran this really got got going build a better fake theropod um, lots of people contributing their little various scribbles i created a few but didn't really do very good ones brian's the best um yeah check it out and and some you know it, it did get quite a lot of uh digital artists comic artists and stuff involved and yeah, there's there's some there's some great ones. I'd like I'd, I'd like to say more, but I can't remember the names of the people, so I'll just embarrass myself. But they're they're great. So, <clears throat> there you go. Probably because um, I've been avoiding Jurassic World stuff for a while, I'm just sort of burnt out on it. <clears throat> and um, we're going to have to go and watch the goddamn film for the podcasts whenever mm, it comes out. Yeah. A hashtag Tetsu name game is now a thing, which is where I I provide a list of ten. Weird animal names. Te- they're all they're only tetrapods, of course. And um, people then say how many they know out of ten. And thanks to the Tetsu Wiki, <clears throat> which is also a thing now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right, don't say thing too often. Let's write it down. Um, and also, don't stuff. Let's write that down as well. Don't say stuff. 
Um, it's going to be tricky. Tessie. Don't say thing or stuff. Okay. Well, I'll manage it. All right. It'll be tricky. You have to make a little noise if I do say either of those words. Okay. Um, yeah. Tezu name games. If thanks, thanks to the wiki, that they're all they're all like tabulated, and all the names are there. So, if you consider yourself a zoology nerd, hashtag Tezu name game. Go have some fun. Uh, and the scent, the the award, as usual, for getting the highest mark out of ten is a smug sense of self satisfaction. Mm. <clears throat> um, but I get that every day, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> Having mentioned the thing, <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. Bing. Episode two of the new TV series Fortitude was on last night, and and I already reckon that I, I know where that's going. I reckon I've seen some some foreshadowing in that, but uh, yeah, and it seems a bit. Oh, I don't know. This, should I say or with it spoilers? No, it's too early in too early in the series. I don't know what it is. What is it? Fortitude. Uh, it's just this. I, I had no interest in it whatsoever. No plans to watch it. Tony likes those kinds of things, you know. She watched the killing and all that sort of stuff, and and it's just I just can't escape it. Just by being out and and looking and using my eyes, there's like giant posters everywhere and sort of things stuck on bus shelters. Fortitude, fortitude, fortitude. Ooh, everyone's talking about fortitude, really. And then <clears throat> and then it's repeated like ten times every night. So you know. If you have a television on, which unfortunately we do, um, yeah, you just can't help but watch it. Even if you know, even if I was working, but uh, well, working. I say working. I was on the computer. Uh, yeah, it's just it's some. I don't know. It's in some like it's kind of like Fargo meets the thing with um, uh, Midsummer Murders. I don't know. It's got sort of like some weird murder stuff that's happening in some little Arctic town. I, haven't really been paying attention but um but there's some weird murders going on and uh okay spoiler spoiler ish spoiler one of the characters said in said in episode two he said you can't die here and then there's a little pause and then he said something else and i reckon that was foreshadowing that that's the whole point of the story yeah. you can't die here as in like if you die here you actually don't die because you become undead or something. Yeah. I, th- I think that's yeah. what they're hinting at. I think that's where the story's going to go. Zombie, zombie thing. <clears throat> exactly. And um, there's already been some like weird maimed carcasses and gross-out things. And they also make a point of repeatedly showing a giant stuffed polar bear that's in the uh, airport or something. So I predict at the end of Series 2, the polar bear's going to come to life. <laughs> <laughs> and we shall see. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're done with that. Um... News from the world of news. News from the world of news. Should say to start with that the two-minute rule is in effect. The Tezu drinking game is in effect. Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh, the patented Keezy Nicklin drinking game. If you want to know the rules, check it out on Tezu Wiki. Right, news from the world of news. Some of these things aren't news. They're not news. Like, okay, save Dippy. You got anything yeah. to say about that? Yeah. What do you feel about save Dippy? Okay, for those who don't know, Dippy is the, for Christ's sake, who came up with that? They should be shot. The, okay, the, the, the cast of the Carnegie Diplodocus, or Diplodocus, however you say it, the big sauropod in the Natural History Museum in London, apparently it's affectionately known as Dippy. It's been there since the 1970s. Uh, the Natural History Museum has said that they are going to put it somewhere else, basically. They're going to replace it with something else, and they're going to replace it with a blue whale skeleton. 
And as soon as this was announced, there was public outcry and there were people setting up Twitter campaigns and um, petitions to hashtag save Dippy because we don't want Dippy to go. We need it to stay there. Excuse me. At the same time, you had other people saying, well, the whole point of the the reason that they're making this decision is because they're saying that, you know, we should be championing conservation biology and stuff, the the conservation biology research we do at the NHM and uh, uh, blue whales are more relevant than our uh, long dead dinosaurs and the dinosaur creates the wrong message, blah, 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 that kind of thing. Okay, so that's the background to this thing. It was huge for a couple of days online. And um, a lot of our friends appeared on TV talking about it. I don't know if you saw any of that, but I did. Um, I've got mixed feelings about it. Uh, I haven't, I, I don't, people are talking about themselves being Team Dippy or Team Whale. And and I I don't, like, my first thought, okay, my first thought. kill you all! <laughs> my first, well, that's always there. But my first thought was, that's actually pretty dumb, because um, people love the dinosaur, I mean, there's other dinosaurs in the Natural Museum, of course, fossil dinosaurs. But um, that Diplodocus skeleton is iconic, and people go there specifically to see it. They people often, you know, people will talk about going to the museum to see the big dinosaur, that that sort of thing. And therefore, the job of the dinosaur is not to tell you about dinosaurs or to tell you about evolution or extinction. It's to get you to go to the museum to see the big dinosaur. And once you're in the museum, then hopefully you'll learn something about evolutionary time and you'll learn something about conservation biology and your appreciation of living things and the natural world will be enhanced, blah, blah, blah. So my first thought is getting rid of the dinosaur is actually pretty dumb because people love seeing a dinosaur. On the other hand, I'm thinking, well, hold on, a blue whale is a pretty impressive thing. And, you know, I've written several times about the blue whales, the model and the skeleton that are in the mammal gallery in the NHM. That skeleton that they've got, which is from Ireland, rep, uh, representing an animal that died on the coast of Ireland in, I think, the late 1800s. Um, you know, if they do, a good, do the right thing with that skeleton, then isn't that going to be incredible and impressive as well? Right. And if they if they do do something as impressive as they have with the Diplodocus, then that's great. But at the moment, it's not looking as if they're doing anything particularly innovative, special or exciting, which is kind of sad because I've said too much. I want you I want you I want to hear you you say some stuff. So I I dislike the conservation biology argument uh, about what we should be displaying in museums like this because i mean if you take that argument to its conclusion then you just ditch everything that's not beating people over the head about conservation biology right well that's not strictly relevant to conservation biology we've got something better we could put here so get rid of everything get rid of all the fossils then who cares you know they're all dead anyway um so And also, I disagree with the tactic, and I don't know how much research there is here, but I think we've well got past the point where people know there is a problem with animals going extinct. I think we're well into the phase of people thinking, well, what do we do about it, right? And so, saying, oh, whales are in danger of extinction, people go, oh, that's a bit of a downer, isn't it? But I already knew that. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, you've got to be telling people 
if you if conservation biology is the aim, I think you've got to be doing more than just raising awareness of the danger because I think that, I think we're past that. I just don't I don't think that's a relevant message to most people anymore. You've got to be telling what to do, and that's tricky because well, with whales, well, I don't eat whale. I don't I don't like my house with whale blubber. <laughs> I'm already doing as much as I can for the whales, really. <laughs> or it's like it's it's the argument is that everything's so embedded in just the way modern human life works. Well, we'll just stop buying things. You know, it just uh, turn all your electricity off right yeah, now. Yeah, turn it all off right now. Yeah, exactly. And I just I feel like the conservation biology message, although it feels kind of like righteous i don't feel like it's a i don't think it's nearly as strong a thing as um museums like this uh well the the way they argue it it's like it's a no-brainer and i don't think it is a no-brainer i I think it's i think it's actually a bit wrong it's making biology into something which is all a bit sad and but what are you going to do because i don't know what to do it's all too hard and i think you need you need to be getting people in with things that aren't sad. Then you don't want biology to be a, a subject where people just feel like it's a downer. You want to get people in because it's fascinating. So I think, from what you said, that you are coming at this from a very similar or even the same angle as me, which is that the dinosaur is the hook. It's to get people in the museum, and that it's a pretty impressive dinosaur. It's not the best dinosaur in the world, but it's a pretty impressive one. Mm. And whales are awesome. And it would be very easy, given infinite money, of course, it would be very easy to make an incredible, you know, awe-inspiring display featuring whales, let alone blue whales. But my concern is, are they doing that? And at the moment, I'm not sure they are. They've shown a whale hanging from the ceiling, so as far away from humans as possible. It's literally hanging from the ceiling. And on the floor underneath the whale is a giant help desk. (laughs) Yes. So so I think if dinosaurs... if Long extinct fossil dinosaurs, because of course, you know, birds are dinosaurs, but long extinct dinosaurs, if they, if they have any role in a museum, it's as ambassadors for the whole of the natural world. It's like, you know, come and look at the museum. museum. People, people don't think of it as a kind of dumb um, symbol for the celebration of extinction. As like, this is a museum and we don't care that animals are going extinct. Right. That's, that's not what we know. That's not what it's about. You get people into the museum because they're looking at the dinosaur. Then they go and look about the whale, and then they hopefully learn about cons- more about conservation biology and stuff. So I've noticed that if you look, at the fact that there is a public, don't want to say outcry, but the fact that there is a you know a lot of interest in this indicates that a lot of people think the same way. They're thinking that that you know we like the dinosaur, we like dinosaurs as impressive things to look at. We'll pay money, or you know, to pay money to get into the museum, but you know we will deliberately make an effort to go to the museum. Charlie Brooker on TV. Last night, um, a big fan of Charlie Brooker, and Charlie Brooker was was uh, promoting. Yeah, he had like a little Team Dippy cap on and stuff, and a little Team Dippy <laughs> flag, and was saying the same thing, exactly the same thing. And that's like an important, you know, person in the in the totally like popular sphere. And I've noticed that paleontologists, which I've seen over the last few days, some paleontologist colleagues tripping over themselves to say how important Team Whale is and how they're all they're pleased to see the Diplodocus go. And yes, we need to champion conservation biology, but guys, I think you're like being too rash here. That's not what it's about. It's well, 
yeah. you've, you've said much the same as I would have done. So, But then on the other hand, I'm a bit like you. Well, you know, it, it maybe it is time for a change. It's been there since the 70s. It's going to go, it's going on tour. So, you know, I, I don't really have a problem with changing that display up. And I don't even really have a problem with Wales. But I, yeah, I kind of agree. I don't think it is actually... It looks kind of impressive in those renderings because it's also clean and they've got the silhouettes and there's nothing on the help desk. You know, it's just sort of this perfect white help desk. But I think in reality, it won't look very impressive. It'll look like every other whale on the ceiling, which is kind of impressive, but it's not. And people have seen that. There's lots of museums with that sort of display. Um, yeah, there's lots of museums with diplodocuses, I suppose. But yeah, I don't know. I, I Whatever. Mm. I don't think the whale's going to be as quite as good but I, I think it might have been time for a change i think that's all right yes yes okay so i think i i think we're both on the same team basically there then mm-hmm. so um uh, and uh, yeah so at the end of it i'm i wouldn't regard myself as team dippy i wouldn't say i'm team whale i'm sort of somewhere in the middle i'm kind of leaning maybe towards team whale if it's done right but my concern is i'm not sure that it is done right and i also think they're missing the point that yeah, it's like David Attenborough said exactly the same thing to what you just said. That's like when you talk about the natural world, you can't say every single time, "Oh, we're here in we're here in the Amazon rainforest," but uh, uh, it's going to be gone in a couple of decades. Yeah, that mo- that monkey's going to be in someone's pot, and <laughs> and these plants they're all dying, and all the big animals are gone, yeah. and the whole ecosystem is basically screwed. You can't do that because are you going to watch the next documentary? Are you going to you know? Are you, going, are you going to contribute in some way to the maintenance, the conservation, whatever, uh, of this fauna? Whereas if people do take the time to say, you know, this is the lesser spotted jungle butt weevil or whatever, and it does this, and it's amazing, and it can shoot fire. <laughs> wow, really? It's like, that's, that's, you have to kind of promote the, uh, the good stuff before you can say, stop, stop eating them or, 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 or whatever. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, Finding Bigfoot UK. Yeah. <laughs> now, this probably shouldn't go in news in the world of news, but so, um, yeah, I'll, I've watched Finding Bigfoot. I think I mentioned it a couple of times. It's kind of entertaining slash infuriating, uh, and uh, I just thought it was quite funny that there's an episode from a couple of days ago. We're talking in the first week of February 2015 when um, they came to the UK to look for Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, because... Did this this may not be well known in the um, outside the sphere of people interested in cryptozoology, but there's a substantial number, as in a couple of hundreds, of sightings in in inverted commas air quotes sightings from various parts of the UK, not just like rural mountains, you know, in remote regions, but from everywhere in the UK, people claiming to see um, Bigfoot type creatures, <laughs> which. Uh, um, if you actually read the accounts, there's a particularly memorable one, <clears throat> which uh, I read the other day, and it was, I just came out of the local pub. Okay, red flag number one. When I was went I went into the bushes to relieve myself, okay, red flag number two, you're some kind of silly person, and, um, and I saw coming towards me a huge dark shape. Okay, and, number f- and, and it smelt really bad. Yeah, you were like urinating all over the place, weren't you? And uh, and they're they're kind of like of that caliber. And uh, oh yep. god, it's just the whole idea that it might be the whole idea these accounts might be taken seriously in the first place. Uh, the TV show was actually kind of embarrassing, and um, they um, 
they talk a lot about the woodwozer or the woodwose, the the alleged like wild hairy man of like medieval English um, mythology, and also the green man, which is kind of meant to be sort of like a a woodland spirit, humanoid spirit covered in leaves and stuff. And of course, they kind of implied that this was some possible link with um, mm. you know Bigfoot type creatures in the UK. But it's oh come on, it's like this is. This is the worst kind of sort of superficial flesh and blood style literalist cryptozoology where, you, you know, I don't, there's nothing I can say here that isn't like extremely familiar to anybody who's ever thought about this, this issue. The, 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 the main, you know, the main thing, the only thing I'll say is that is that it's inescapable that humans, every kind of people, you know, every culture has got some concept of a creature that is neither fully human and is neither part of the rest of the animal world there's always some some idea of you know some kind of man type creature at the fringes of, of humanity and uh, and i just think it's naive to be aware of those and automatically think oh that's evidence for a flesh and blood um you know relict hominin or hominid indeed so also for you know <laughs> the notion that there are remote areas in england is a bit weird yeah. it, they're just there really isn't. There most, is not. There's just not. There's not remote areas. There are. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no bits where you could hide. There's yeah. there's nothing like that. Um, so there's bits in the TV show where they do they, and and <clears throat> when I first heard that they were going to do this, I thought, oh, it's going to be they're going to be up in like you know parts of Scotland where there's like you know one person every square kilometer. But no, they're not. They're in. <laughs> they start in London. And, <laughs> And they're like driving around Oxfordshire and stuff, and they go to they go to some woodlands and they say, "Wow, look at!" I'll do my impression of Bobo Fate. Wow, look at that! It's a real big woodlands squash, good squashing area. We've seen we've seen squashes you know, hiding in places as big as that. And you know they're looking at this sort of what looks like a dense woodland somewhere in the southern half of England, or whatever, somewhere in England. And it's like, yeah, but you walk in that forest. Those, first of all, that forest is a plantation that's probably less than thirty years old. And secondly, those are just those are walking dead ecosystems. You walk in those kinds of because we're talking about dense conifer forests. There is nothing in them forests. That is not like that's not like a British Columbian coastal rainforest with some thriving fauna of and flora of, of lots of things. It's dead. It's only got it's a, basically a, a plantation that contains that one tree and uh, just... they're also quite small generally aren't they i mean you know <laughs> we're not talking about miles and miles and miles of unbroken woodland well they talk you know people say that in north america that you know um how how big is texas isn't texas the size of like texas is the size of a couple of european countries the size of like yeah i don't know well it depends on european countries do vary in size somewhat Okay, it's a good size. It's like France, Belgium, Austria, Luxembourg, Monaco, <laughs> San Marino, and Liechtenstein combined—that <laughs> kind of—and uh, Vatican. <laughs> it's that, that kind of size. Whereas the UK, you no, know how when America- France is bigger than Texas. Okay, well, most of France then. <laughs> if France was a different shape, uh, they're actually um, a they're similar a- shape. Okay. Yeah. Didn't want to trip you up too much there. But yeah, it's... Yep. Okay, go ahead. I think we're done on that. Yeah, we're done on Bigfoot UK, I think. I think we've covered... 
<laughs> Jurassic so just, Snakes. Jurassic Snakes. Uh, oh, yeah, two-minute rule. I somehow think I went over the two-minute rule talking about Bigfoot. Yeah, Big but it's point. just two minutes con- continuous talking, isn't it? Okay. You might have gone over. I don't know. Yeah. You're supposed to be watching the clock there. Hey, should we do some more bat facts? <laughs> bat facts. All right, this is from a guy called John Conway. The average man thinks of bat facts <laughs> once every seven seconds. <laughs> and then this sparked quite an acrimonious debate about John's rampant... What's the word? What's a sexual? What's what's the thing called where you discriminate against people because of their sex? Sexism. S- sexism. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rampant sexism, which <laughs> which went completely wrong. It was quite funny. Uh, bat facts. Teddy Roosevelt once fought a million strong hammerhead batsman with a bullwhip and a luger pistol. He won. <laughs> bat facts. He's responsible bats. for the ninth bat species. You know, it's the extinction of the ninth bat species. I did know that. It's a bat yeah, fact. That's a bat fact. Bats, bats echolocation is actually electromagnetic because bats can't hear. No, I don't actually understand that one. So, um, Then there's some stuff about Batman. Okay, that's enough bat facts. Jurassic okay, snakes. M- more bat facts later. Okay, Jurassic snakes. Uh, very briefly, um, uh, Michael Caldwell and colleagues have just published a paper in, I think, Nature or Nature Communications, where they've described four Jurassic and Lower Cretaceous squamate taxa as early snakes. There's one from Portugal, there's one from the Morrison Formation, there's two from the UK. Some of them aren't that new, some have been known for a while and have just been reinterpreted as snakes and others are brand new, like the uh, Portuguese one, I think it's called Portugalophis. Um, So snakes now have a fossil record going way back into the Jurassic, I think something like 164 million years ago. So their fossil fossil record has been extended by about 70 million years. Now, this is important for several reasons. One thing is it takes snakes well away from the fossil record of mosasaurs and their relatives. So it seems to count against the idea that mosasaurs... Snakes are especially closely related to mosasaurs. Um, The fossils are fragmentary. They consist mostly of skull remains, uh, particularly maxillae and bits and pieces like that. And um, so we can say that these early snakes have got snake-like cranial features, they've got snake-like heads, but we actually don't know whether these very early ones have got snake-like bodies. Bear in mind the previous oldest known snakes from about 100 million years ago, like Pachyophis from, I think, Israel, they, they're known from complete skeletons, more or less, and they're snake-like, but they've still got little limbs, little hind limbs. So it's inferred that these early snakes have got, still got limbs as well, but whether they have got like bigger limbs or more lizard-like bodies. Because the possibility exists that the snake-like head evolved before the snake-like body did, which contradicts some previous ideas. Yeah. In the big phylogeny that they did, oh, these different snakes come from different ecological like contexts. Some of them are from like freshwater wetland environments. Some of them are from terrestrial environments. In the big phylogeny they did, snakes group closest to a clade that includes amphisbanians and dibarmids. Dibarmids are a weird limbless group of burrowing squamates. So this is in agreement with other studies done by some other squamate workers where they find snakes to be closely related to um, mostly limbless, mostly burrowing squamates and it's against the idea that snakes are deeply nested within a group that includes mosasaurs and monitor lizards and stuff. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a quite a gee whiz paper and uh, got quite a lot of attention so yeah that's that's pretty interesting that's a big extension it is yes it is and some of these fossils aren't new so one of them 
Parvaraptor. Parvaraptor is known has been known from the UK since certainly since the 1980s, and I think for longer than that. But it hasn't been identified as a snake because the snaky bits were jumbled up with the bits of other kinds of squamates, like members of the gecko lineage and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, the fossils aren't all new, but they've only just been interpreted as snakes. Okay, right. Was that so, within two minutes? Yep, I think so. And I've just got one thing to say to you. This is, this is this is a, from a guy called Darren Nash. Bats have no remorse and never cry, except the Venezuelan crybaby bat. Hashtag bat facts. Okay, let's move on to Hume's Owl. Hume's Owl Revelation. Hume's what? Owl Revelation. Yeah, why is that hard to say? Hume's Owl Revelation. There we go. Uh, so Hume's Owl Strix Butleri is a North African... Um, Strix owl, so like I say, member of you know the same group as like the familiar tawny owl here in the old world. Um, and uh, this new paper by Guy Kerwin and colleagues published in Zootax, uh, um, yeah. it's not Hume's owl in just North Africa, and it's like throughout the Middle Eastern region, Eastern Asia, the Arabian Peninsula, and stuff. So they show via, um, uh, DNA uh, and vocalization data and some anatomical data that uh, Strix owl is actually two. So, because the finding of a new owl, new owl doesn't happen all that often, they have named this new owl Strix hadoramai. Uh, where's the etymology in the paper? I can't remember why it's called that. Um, this is uh, yeah. This is not a particularly exciting gee whizzy thing. It's not as significant as the finding of a bunch of new fossil snakes, or a new but, tapir, for example, or a new tapir, which we'll come to shortly. Because there's some. It's funny you should say that. Yeah. Uh, but this story has, if you if you keep an eye on you know zoological news in the news, then this story got a lot of uh, coverage. I guess because people just love owls, and the finding of a new owl is. Uh, is is an interesting thing. the The holotype, what well, I think the holotype specimen of Strix, what did I say, Hadoramai. I haven't found the etymology section of the paper. I don't know why where the name comes from. But the the holotype was part of the Minot's Hagen collection. Now, um, Colonel Richard Minot's Hagen is a notorious person in the world of ornithology because um, it he he named loads of new species and had loads and loads of new area records for birds. And to cut a very long story short, you know, a lot's been written about this. Those of you who know anything about birds will be familiar with this already. Turned out that Minot's Hagen was a little bit naughty and he was actually nicking stuff routinely from museums and putting it in other museums, <laughs> and uh, including holotypes and all kinds of stuff like that. He was... Uh, Really interesting guy. He was also an expert on the history of embroidery. He did a lot of exploration in um, tropical Africa. He has a really impressive big mammal named after him, Hylocarus minus Hagenai, the giant African forest hog. And he wrote a really weird book on birds of prey. So interesting guy. But um, but this, the fact that this owl is part, the holotype of this owl is part of the minus Hagen collection. Actually, I've just found the section in Kerwin et al.'s paper. Although our holotype formed part of the Minus Hagen collection and therefore might be tainted by suggestions of fraud, its provenance can be deemed legitimate on the basis of an independent investigation by Richard Pris Jones and PC Rasmussen. This analysis showed that in the many cases in which original labels of other collectors are retained on Minus Hagen specimens, there is no evidence of data tampering. And furthermore, in this case, Minus Hagen's Aharoni specimen 
Ahoni being a place in, I think, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the specimen matches the two AMH Ahoni specimens of this species in unusual details of specimen preparation. Because the reason that some of the Minus Hagen specimens were discovered to have been nicked from other collections is that um, Rasmussen, I think her first name is Pamela, I might misremember that, but PC Rasmussen. Rasmussen noticed that the style of taxidermy, the way that a uh, an Indian owl called the Af- um, is it the Indians? Oh, there's a spotted owlet uh-huh. that was. Well, it's only known from a couple of specimens, and she noticed that this owlet had been stuffed in a particular way, unique to a particular taxidermist at a particular museum, and that was the thing that proved that Minotshagen had nicked that owlet. I want to say African spotted owlet, but now I can't remember. Uh, this has been written, like I say, this has been written about a lot, and a lot of bird people know this stuff very well. African spotted owlets, Minotshagen. See what Google says. Uh, yeah, forest owlet. It's yeah. Now we reach the portion of the show. <laughs> Google stuff and mumbles. <laughs> yeah, the, the, well, maybe we should come back to this or something. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I feel like this is a bigger topic than, than we really should be doing. In exactly. The world of news. So, because we're right, we've been talking for like an hour and a half now. So. We should, we should move on. Um, okay, let's just say new tape here. New, new tape, tape here. Teddy Roosevelt. Shot it, yep. Shot South America. Yep, okay. okay. Tiger Moving success. On. Yeah, we'll leave that for now. Who cares okay. about tigers? Not me. Right. Cash for questions. <clears throat> Cash for, for questions. questions. Cash for questions, questions, questions. <laughs> Thank you to Cash for Questioners. Indeed. Now, you've got, you've got to remember to say... You forgot to say this last time. If you're sending us a cash for question, we do prioritise them on the basis of hard cash. <laughs> so, so those of you who've sent us, what's the politically correct way of saying measly tiny sums of money? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, please understand that we appreciate obviously any support that we get, and we really do. But. Um, the, the the people that send in the some some people send in sizable donations which we have to prioritise, but um, but we still try and be fair. Indeed, or I uh, do anyway. And people ask us questions without giving us any money, so you know it is it yeah. is nice to get some money with a question. Um, right. So given that, let's go with let's start off with a question from Aaron Wells. Should Godzilla have ther- fe- should Godzilla have feathers? In brackets, since it's a theropod. Okay. Uh, that's from Aaron Wells. So, first of all, which version of Godzilla are we talking about? With the one in the new film? Uh, let's go with the original. Okay. Right. Well, it's really easy to answer this. The basic answer is, if he really is a theropod, and obviously there's conflicting backstories as to what Godzilla is, then Godzilla is not meant to be a... Solurosaur, so it's not part of the clade of theropods that have that has true feathers. Is Godzilla then part of the theropod clade that has filamentous type, in quotes, proto feathers? Um, well, I don't know. When people have tried to work out what kind of theropod Godzilla could be, <laughs> Ken Carpenter in particular has written an article about the the affinities of Godzilla. Godzilla's normally been thought to be some kind of like ceratosaur great theropod. In which case, we don't at the moment have any good indication that those dinosaurs 
had fuzz or filament type things or feathers. Yeah. So I would say at the moment, the indications are... And also, we also think that even in those theropod groups that ancestrally had feathers, it may be that when some of them evolve large body size, they like uh, reduce or lose a feathery covering. And Godzilla is quite a large animal. Indeed. Plus, also, he's apparently assuming that he has un- that he represents a lineage that has undergone evolution. Uh, and of course, we don't really know about that because Godzilla is also meant to be a mutant in some of these um, storylines. Um, assuming he's, he represents a lineage that has undergone no- a normal evolution, then he's strongly adapted for like swimming in the sea and stuff. Which means we might also think that he would even if he did belong to a lineage that ancestrally had feathers, it might have secondarily become featherless. Or is it that those scales are actually highly modified feathers? I hadn't thought about that. But <laughs> or, Darren, that Godzilla does have feathers, but you just never see him close up enough to see them because they're not that big. You know, if you had like a, a four-inch long feather on a Godzilla, is there ever a shot of Godzilla where you'd be able to tell that whether they were feathers or, or skin? Well, I would say there's in all the movies there's close-ups of like his eyes and stuff. So, yeah. but, e- but even it. then they're meant to be like four foot across or whatever, aren't they? They'd have to be really, really, really tiny feathers. They'd have to be like you know five millimeters long or something. No, they not... wouldn't. No, no, no. I think I think they could be ordinary bird-sized feathers, <laughs> and you wouldn't see them. You wouldn't see them. Okay. So my simple answer is no. Godzilla does not have feathers. <laughs> because of the theropod lineage that, that he seems to belong to, combined with the fact that he may be especially, you know, specialised for aquatic time. John says, oh, maybe, and we just can't see them. <laughs> what about that? What Could they be invisi feathers? Invisi feathers. <laughs> <laughs> or psychic feathers. <clears throat> <clears throat> or, like I say, I quite like this idea, how about that ceratosaur-grade theropods actually do have feathers, and that some of the feathers have morphed back into things that look like reticuli or scales, and that we've actually misinterpreted Godzilla's, in quotes, scales. Remember the term scale doesn't really mean anything, it just means keratin sheet or bony thing embedded in or on the skin or whatever. Yeah. So, um, Yeah, okay, so there's your answer. There's your answer. <laughs> no, no, but maybe. But <laughs> and, yeah. No, but perhaps yes. <laughs> Okay, and right, we're now rushed for time, aren't we? So we're going to, so yeah. uh, okay, I don't so, have the questions in front of me. So. No, you have to rely on me reading them out. Yeah. So this is from Marco Boscher, and he says, Darren mentioned Adrienne Mayer. Adrienne, Adrienne Mayer? Adrienne Adri- Mayer? Ad- Adrienne, she's a lady. Adrienne? Yeah. A couple of times on the blog, what do you think of her... Con- contention that mythical animals represent life reconstructions than purely fantastical monsters and what do we and can we really do arco cryptozoology if so could you please speculate on which prehistoric animal was the source for the multi-headed hydra (laughs) here we go adrian maya i think it's pronounced maya i hope so the first fossil hunters i just went and dug out her famous book. Mm-hmm. See, how would you pronounce that, Adrian? Maya? Maya? Maya. I, th- I think it's Maya. M A Y O R. Yeah, as in Maya. Maya. Apologies to her. Um, 
So, yeah, so her primary contention is that the people of ancient times, uh, this book is obviously a lot, a lot of it is about ancient Greeks and Romans, that they were actually quite familiar with fossils of big mammals going like, you know, 20 million years back, but also that they knew of dinosaurs from places like Mongolia and China, like in particular Protoceratops, and that they interpreted these things as the remains of like mythological uh, or long-dead creatures, heroes, uh, monsters from mythology, yeah, and that they tried to reconstruct them. And this has come up many, many times in discussions about, yeah, paleo art and the art of reconstruct, reconstructing things and the history of paleontology. And I've got to say, I still haven't really, there's something else I don't really have a firm opinion on. I'm kind of quite open-minded on this. I'm not convinced by the case that tales of protoceratops from Mongolia, um, you know, uh, being transferred to the West through many Asian cultures and getting into Europe. I'm, I'm not convinced that stories about griffins are really based on descriptions of Proceratops finds. But on the other hand, I don't find it an implausible idea. I, I find it quite a reasonable idea, the idea that people might have said, oh, we found this skeleton and it had a beak like a bird and it had giant ear things on the back of the head and it was close to, you know... It was either close to nests of eggs or it was close to whether they were protoceratops eggs or not, doesn't matter. And it was also close to, like, you know, mines where there were gold. You can understand that if people did hear that, you know, even a couple of hundred years ago, let alone a couple of thousand years ago, would they have thought, oh, yeah, that was, there was some, like, big bird monster and maybe it looked like this. I think that's a pretty reasonable idea. I'm not saying it's well supported enough that we should embrace it and say it is the. Yeah, I, I think oh, I haven't read the book. I you know this is I haven't really thought about the idea seriously but it uh, obviously people must have been coming across fossils for a long time right so there must have been some interpretation and influence on uh, stories and culture uh, I just the, the 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 germ of the idea seems relatively solid but uh, yeah any particular connections to me seem questionable but I haven't read a book so I don't know yeah well, having read the book, that, that's my take home on it as well. It's that it seems like a reasonable concept, but I'm not sure that any of the, the cases really convince me. So on the cover of the book, now this is uh, obviously a photograph of a vase, which I understand they say vase in some parts of America, uh, the world. <laughs> vase. What next? Niche. Niche. Um, that's and you see that No one would now, say that. For the purposes of our listeners, see that picture of a skull? Yep. Okay, so there's a skull there. Yeah. And Maya says that that is a depiction of the skull of the extinct giraffid Samotherium from the island of Samos, Greece. And it's like... And, uh, and, and that's kind of like part of her case, the idea that people had found this fossil skull... So there's some fossil civithere skulls. Mm -hmm. She's saying they found a skull of this form and it was incorporated into this Show particular story. Show me that picture again. Story. What, this one? The, 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 on the vase. <laughs> well. Yeah. See, mm. now. It's got a sclerotic that, ring. W possibly. 
it does look like it's got a sclerotic ring. And also, what, what's with that hole in front of the eye? I mean, that's... Looks like a, a monitor lizard or something to me. Well, I think the point is that that is just a generic, like, skull. It's just a generic toothy monster skull. And I can't see that that's linked to... Actually, forget what I said about the... That's not... That black thing is not an opening because it's an artifact because there's another one there. That's just like paint smudges or something. Yeah. Yeah. Again, for the purposes of our listeners, they are holding it up close to the camera. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's... I think that kind of weakens the idea that... Or is it that they're bulls that are being thrown at it? Because there's a character throwing... She's throwing bulls at the skull, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Them wacky Greeks. (laughs) So, and it's the same for the for the protoceratops stuff. It's like, yeah, it's kind of like there's enough there to you to think that maybe, maybe it was based on that. Yeah. But yeah, see, look, this is what Maya does. So there's that picture of the vase again. Yeah. And then, then there's there's the giraffid, same Ethereum. Mm. But to get from to get to say that that the skull of same Ethereum is represented there in this mythological painting, yeah. see, is a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. And I think that from a scientific perspective, without you know wanting to get down on the humanities or anything, the social sciences, but from a scientific perspective, the case is not strong enough for us to say, yeah, you made us, yeah, I'm going to buy that. So, um... And I also think this ties in with a lot of mythology and also with cryptozoology as well, is with a lot of cases, it does seem that people just made stuff up. So when they were like weird monsters, so the griffin, it's got bird wings and a bird's beak and lion's claws and it can fly and it's quite dangerous. Well, if you ask like a, you know, like a a six-year-old kid to make a monster. (laughs) Yeah. It's got a, it's got a giant bear claws, and it can breathe fire. Yeah, and it's got a, uh, it's got a razor for a tail, and it's covered in magnets. So if you're made of metal, you stick to it. And uh, and they say it's got four arses. So <laughs> episode of Father Ted channeling that there. But um, I don't think you necessarily need a uh, flesh and blood or bone and bone. Um, yeah, explanation necessarily at the bottom of it. Indeed, and so a lot of them seem to be sort of conglomerates of noble beasts or at least traditional you know eagles or griffins and tigers and you know it's not yeah uh yeah so so yes that's the end of that plausible idea but not demonstrated yes i so and that's yeah there we go so i think we've answered that best we can that's the the end of that question that's the end of that chapter <laughs> okay. No, oops, I've marked this one as done when it's not done. Okay. <clears throat> another bat fact, another bat fact. Okay, yeah, let's do another bat fact. Bat facts. When all bats are in flight, Earth specific gravity drops to zero point eight. So Earth is actually lighter during the night, not darker. <laughs> <laughs> oh what what beautiful confusion of concepts. <laughs> Okay, you ready for this cash for question? Uh, yeah, are you sure? From Try Mar- me. Marie Boots. And oh, she, yeah, Marie. And she asks, I'd like you to continue the discussion started on Twitter of how 
parthenogenetic species evolution works. We touched on mutation, and you also mentioned that they can reproduce sexually. So when do they yeah. not? And can hybridize with related species. What species are parthenogenetic? Why? How does it relate to their evolution, etc., etc.? Please elaborate. This is fascinating. Uh, thanks for the question. So basically, the question can be summarized as, please tell me everything about parthenogenesis. <laughs> so, ooh, well, go on. You can explain this one. I absolutely cannot. <laughs> Parthenogenesis is quite nasty, and uh, well, actually, it's quite a handy thing. But um, I mean, in terms of like the mechanics of it, um, so parthenogenesis is really widespread in the animal world. It's practiced routinely or obligatorily by loads of insects, most famously aphids. Um, there's loads of stuff that do it. But among interesting animals, among tetrapods. There's some salamanders that do it. There's a bunch of lizards that do it, in particular the um, uh, Chlamydophorus and Apidoscelis whiptail tiered lizards of the American Southwest and Central America as well. Uh, it's been documented in Komodo dragons and one or two other monitor lizard species. It's routinely practiced by the Brahmini blind snake. It's been reported in boas, pythons, rattlesnakes. Uh, so there are some species where parthenogenesis which basically means virgin birth. It means that they produce viable offspring without having mated. Um, it seems to be the normal condition for some of the animals I've just listed, but in others, it's a an occasional thing. Like in Komodo dragons, nobody knew Komodo dragons were capable of parthenogenesis until a couple of years ago when an individual who had never had a sexual encounter with another dragon, as far as we know, she uh, produced a viable clutch of eggs. And the first thing they did was check out whether there'd been any sneaky midnight liaisons with other <laughs> dragons and uh, and they determined that there, there hadn't been these these babies really were clones or half clones of her which is a confusing thing so so how does this how does this actually work well so when things reproduce their chromosomes divide and then so the so you then get haploid chromosomes containing half the amount of genetic information as the chromosomes of the mother and in in quotes normal animals these haploid chromosomes the ones with half the information cannot produce viable growing uh, babies but in some animals they can some animals it seems they've got enough chromosomes in the first place that even haploid ones can produce viable offspring and this the juveniles of a whole bunch of uh, um, there's a whole bunch of like p things that arise via parthenogenesis where the individuals are haploid, but in others they then do some weird genetic-y stuff, which mm. means that the haploid booga, booga, booga. set of chromosomes yeah become diploid ones. They have the full range of chromosomes, and they're, therefore they're they're happy. They produce like a viable working uh, organism and. I'm not going to. I don't need to worry about those too much because that does not happen in tetrapods. But in the, now, I've read quite a bit about how parthenogenesis is supposed to occur in the parthenogenetic lizards, and so meiosis occurs. The chromosomes split in half, and oh, these lizards, by the way, the, they consist of like all female populations but they still engage in what looks like sexual behavior, as in what looks like sort of male-female um, mating. And it seems that this happens because they're basically really hyped up on hormones. And by simulating the act of mating, so 
girl on girl lizard action they are triggering ovulation and so it still seems that like kind of if you like a sort of mock mating a sort of sexual behavior does uh does trigger ovulation and the start of the the process um we know from genetic work that's been done that the parthenogenetic lineages in these lizards have arisen through hybridization of sexual lizard species. So species where males and females mate in the more typical fashion. And um, I was a bit worried in reading up about this, that thinking that, so what happens is you get like, so meiosis occurs, the chromosomes split, so you've got haploid sets of chromosomes, then is it that they merge with chromosomes from like uh, an, like an ancestral species that's still somehow incorporated in the chromosomal count of these animals, and then they recombine in a certain way that means that the only result can be a parthogenetic, parthenogenetic offspring, right? And I thought, oh, there's going to be some really complicated explanation. But you know what the explanation is? Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows how it actually works, um, so far as I can tell. They know that these parthenogenetic lizards, and I'm specifically referring here to the Canemidophorus and Episcelis, uh whiptail lizards of North America and Central America, they know that the, the asexual ones are high, have arisen through hybridization involving sexual species, but it's not yet understood why chromosomal combination results has resulted in parthenogenetic um, species. So there are these whole species, and bear in mind, you know, how many times have we covered this before? Don't go thinking, oh, is it really a species if it had a hybrid origin? Because species means whatever the hell we like. So species is essentially synonymous with population, and at what level you want to regard it as a species is entirely up to, up to you. So, Your speciometer. So there are these parthenogenetic populations, species, whatever you want to call them, where all the individuals are basically, you know, because they are only, they're not incorporating the genes of two individuals, they're basically clones of their mothers, they don't incorporate as much genetic variation as sexually reproducing animals. So the advantage to this, the reason why this might have evolved in some situations, is that it means a single individual has the capacity to produce, you know... Hmm theoretically infinite number of offspring on it, one colonizing individual. The downside is that obviously because they don't get new DNA coming in from other individuals, they're all the same. It means that they're very vulnerable to, uh, you know, a disease or whatever, wiping them out. So they seem to be, they are assumed to be boom and bust species. So they're short-lived. They arise probably, I mean, I just said they evolved like as if, as if, selection is selecting them selecting their, their survival is advantageous but it may be they originally arise via fluke due to genetic events that we don't understand mm. something to do something to do with chromosomal combination from sexual ancestors sometimes results in these asexual populations um I and mean, that's basically as far as i understand it and also this this idea that they are kind of short-lived boom and bust kind of weeds is matched by the fact that they occur kind of at like suboptimal kind of crappy habitat fringes. They seem these parthenogenetic species seems to seem to be like weeds like at, just at the edges uh, hard to kill off and uh, <laughs> um and what was the other point? Um short-lived 
vulnerable to extinction. Oh, yes, yeah, so that, that's like all theory, and that's what people have been saying about these things for decades now, but it's been contradicted by the fact that there's a parthenogenetic tetrapod, I think it's a salamander, and uh, one of the mole salamanders, and by stomatids, um, that was found to be actually quite old, and it's been doing this thing for millions of years, mm-hmm. which contradicts this whole idea that they're short-lived booming, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah. Well... I guess the thing would be that if you get lucky with your genetics, um, then you, maybe you don't need uh, sexual reproduction. Maybe if you start out with a relatively good bunch, then you can just keep going. I mean, sexual reproduction, is of, the general theory is that it's um, adding to variation, right? It provides you yeah. with extra variation to work with. But if you don't need to vary very much, you know, you're sticking the same habitat you're sticking with the same lifestyle maybe you just don't need it so yeah yeah uh so there you go there's your answer ooga booga booga genetics and we don't know <laughs> yeah it's not an answer but that's a somewhat <laughs> more discussion of the subject which i think is what's that's true it wasn't actually a specific question was it yeah more discussion so and you know maybe we'll discuss it again because it's a it's an interesting thing there's a lot of research done on it yeah and um yeah. Okay. I think yeah. we're going to move this this other question from Jonathan Mitchell to next next episode because we need to talk about popular tat now. Popular tat, and we're going to talk about Lucy. Yeah. And spoilers. <laughs> major major spoilers. We are going to completely spoil the entire film for you in more ways than one. Mm. I think. Right. So, do you want to start? I'm just trying to find another bat fact. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where's that one about what happens if... Uh, I'll ruin it. No, I'll ruin it if I give it away. Yeah. Sorry, just excuse me while I scroll through this Twitter feed. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, this I is know, another uh, great part of the show. Darren scrolls through Twitter while mumbling. Um, camera films. Frog tongues. Acting up to Rigian fish. Frog tongues, Permian bears. This is all fodder for the drinking game. Yeah. Uh, Jurassic World. Liam Neeson's daughter. Uh, True Grit. Hook Island sea monster. T-shirts. Sea monsters. Tyrannosaurs versus bees. What? Back from the woods. Trunk protrusion in frogs. Oh God. Car wrecks. Georgia. All yes. right, all right, all right. Come on, we have to talk about Lucy now. Vaccinating your kids, fossil anchovies. I can't find it. There's uh, that. Where was that one about all the bats? If all the bats in the world flew <laughs> flew against the the direction of the Earth's rotation, the Earth's gravity would slow down on bat or time would go backwards or something. I I can't find it now. It would go backwards, so, I think, wouldn't it? Yeah. Fact. Fact. Well, bat fact to be precise. Uh, Anyway, okay, stop come wasting on. time. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who wants to start talking about this piece of film? <laughs> you can start. Shut the front door. <laughs> Lucy. Okay, Lucy stars Morgan Freeman as Dr. Scientist. And, <laughs> um, oh, I've forgotten her name. Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett, I quite like Scarlett Johansson. I think she's pretty good. She's been in some good movies and she does quite a good job of wherever she does. But this is a movie directed by Luc Besson, who directed The Fifth Element, Leon. I'm sure I said all this before. Um, so I thought, Lucy, oh, it's going to be quite a good film. 
Yeah. Boy, was I wrong. Yeah, I think that's what everyone thought, huh? <laughs> what a pile of crap. <laughs> let's let's not beat about the bush here. Lucy is a pile of crap. It's one of the worst movies ever. And it shouldn't have been made. And it shouldn't have been made in the first place because the basic premise of the movie is erroneous. And for me, that means a film just shouldn't even exist. So the idea of the film is that we primates we humans and it's said that we are the pinnacle of life on the planet life has evolved up to us and we are at the top of the chain of the evolutionary ladder um this is stuff that i said in the movie i'm not being stupid um it's said that we only use 10 percent of our cerebral capacity we only use 10 percent of our brains and of course this is like one of those popular myths that you've probably heard and uh, some stupid people apparently still believe it and of course it's complete crap the idea apparently originated due to like really crude brain scans done in the like 1960s some of the first brain scans which uh should have asked Richard Heyer about this, a brain expert guy I know, one of the first people to use CT scanning on brains. But um, whatever, yeah. Originally, there was this idea that we don't use much of our brains, and of course that turned out to be completely inaccurate. It's just because people were getting dud results from rudimentary basic technology. We use you know, <laughs> pretty much all of our brains, as do most things that have brains, as far as we know. So the whole, lot, the whole principle of this film... It shouldn't, this film shouldn't exist because it's just a stupid, dumb idea. And, of course, a lot of people believe it. There's, and there's this idea that if only you could tap into the whole potential of your brain, you'll turn into magic. You'll turn into, like, a magic thing and you'll be able to do magic stuff. And that's what happens in the film Lucy. So Lucy is a drugs mule who's – she's, like, backpacking around Taiwan and she becomes incorporated in a drugs ring and she is supposed to carry a packet of little blue drugs that are – they they look like they've been um, surgically implanted into her abdomen, just subdermal. But at some point in the story, somebody says they were put inside her. They were put inside your intestines. What they put them inside your guts? Really? That's like even stupider. And she makes someone angry, and he beats her up, and um, and that splits the bag open, and all these little blue drugs fire through her body and turn her into magic Lucy. Mm. And now she can fly. She can control other people. And the film ends with her turning into a big blob of glue, goo, before turning into a USB stick. <laughs> so, I mean, the, yeah, that's true. She does turn into a big glob of glue and then a USB stick. However, there, <clears throat> yes, yeah. no, continue. You've, you've clearly got more to say, or even though well, you are wandering around at this point. Sorry, I was shutting the blinds. Um, Have you seen Akira? Oh, no. Oh, yeah, I have. Years ago. I don't remember it it very well. Okay, it just struck me that some parts of the story were based on Akira. Um, Yeah, Lucy probably is based on some, you know, Japanese movie or something. I've got the impression that it is, and that we haven't done any homework and done anything about that, or I certainly don't anyway. But uh, in Akira, Akira is like loosely about the idea that, that there's this kind of sort of psychic power that's been present in living things right from the origin of life and if only you can tap into that power then you'll develop you know be able to control mind and matter and all this stuff Mm. and it ends with the main character like getting this huge surge of energy and turning into like a giant kind of big blob monster and some aspects of lucy were very similar to that Mm -hmm. um so i thought it was kind of kind of based on that but 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 maybe not and 
It's it's actually a fairly common trope, isn't it? It's some sort of um, force, if you will, that you can tap into that makes you magic. Um, it, it's like it's also quite similar to the plot of the Matrix. Yeah. Um, which was much much better sci-fi, obviously. Although, of course, it had its flaws. Um, it was much better set up. There's a whole hidden subtext to the Matrix that a lot of people don't get, and that that you you know I didn't get until I saw it the second and third time. But um, yeah, that's that's not the case in Lucy. It's just pure superficial. Woman develops magic powers and then is able to. Because like, there's a no, bit where she explains. I don't. I don't think so. I think this film had highfalutin ideas, and it was about. Can- being our own gods, right? And so mm-hmm. it was trying to say something about if we become truly self-aware, we use 100% of our brains, we will be, our, as I say, our own gods. This will be sort of a spiritual awakening for us or something like this. Mm. But this is where we're headed. It's sort of like superhumanism or something like this. I I, I think that's what it was um, rather clumsily hammering away at for a while, especially towards the end. I think that's what it was about. I think it was very poorly done because the basic sci-fi was so poor mm. um, that uh, I think that it was easy to miss that. But I think that's what was going on in Lucy. I think it had it had highfalutin ideas, definitely. She referred she referred at one point to the fact that she worked out that well, it, it, again, it wasn't really explained, but it was something to do with like numbers and everything that we understand about the universe is actually all meaningless, and the only thing that matters is like where you are in time. And as soon as you get to this one hundred percent use of your brain, that time is the only thing that matters, and therefore, and you can control it and you can move around in time. And as soon as she reaches that. Epiphany. She then zips around in time. Yes. Goes to visit. Goes to visit some indigenous Americans and confuses them, and then goes back to a time of giant horse tails and sees a kind of dinosaur. Dinosaur, yeah. When the pterosaur in the air. Yeah. Yeah. That dinosaur. Because I knew there was going to be a dinosaur. As soon as you, oh, those are meant to be prehistoric-looking trees. Yeah. And that dinosaur was just well. That was it. Was just te- it was terrible, but why yeah. did they go with it? It's like it kind of like open its mouth like seven times bigger than it should have done. Blah, sort of big, kind of ran at her. Yeah, well, that's what dinosaurs do. Right? You've only got to look at paleo art to know that. Darren. Fact, fact, <laughs> dino fact. <clears throat> and then she visits Lucy the Australopithecine, which of course is referenced at the start of the film. The uh, the idea that the first woman was called Lucy. What you really call that animal a woman? I don't know that I technically would, but um, yeah. And that 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 Lucy thing. They showed a model of a Lucy in a museum, and it was actually you know quite a good looking model. It looked like an ape, like a chimpanzee, human thing. But the the Lucy CG that they had drinking out of a puddle. Look, it reminded me of a grey alien from, like, the X-Files or something, you know, kind of, like, real frenetic sort of big blinking eyes and real kind of weird jerky movements that just didn't look ape-like at all. So I think they... So I think they, I think that's pretty bad animation. Also, um, I point out that in that scene they were, they were hammering away on this sort of our own god theme in that she they did the finger Michelangelo 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Finger about that. finger point. So she Lucy is what, giving her soul to Lucy or something. This is what it's this is why this is why I say the film had highfalutin ideas about this. This is exactly this is its point. Uh, yes. I didn't I didn't get that at all. Um but I think we should talk about the percentage of the brain thing a bit more and Morgan Freeman's character because that it's it's so painful to watch. As anyone that knows anything about science and the way scientists talk about stuff and the way mm. scientific theories are constructed or criticized or understood, this <laughs> it's almost I tell you, it tipped over for me from being uncomfortable and angry making into pure hilarity. I just felt like it was so badly done that it was funny. Prometheus yeah. made me angry. <laughs> <laughs> this just made me laugh. I mean, it was it was really quite ropely bad. Yeah, that, that there seems to be this thing in movies where you see, you know, someone is shown as being like the top of their field because they're given they're giving a presentation. Mm. Now, if you if you re- if you really are a big name in a certain branch of research and you give a presentation it's an important presentation it's going to be some keynote speech at a conference you know an evening dinner conference or you know, any a reception thing you know it's going to be like in front of other people who are also you know important people in the field but they don't know when they do these in movies they haven't decided whether it's a presentation like that or whether it's someone in a teaching class because mm. he was given this talk that's that was structured like a well, I don't know that it's not structured like any kind of real scientific presentation because yeah, it's stated as, yeah, it's stated as fact, 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 which is not how you present, you know, what you're doing. You, you sort of, this is what we've done and the new exciting research and we've just discovered this. He wasn't doing it like that, obviously. But, but it was kind of, it was meant to be, it was a mashup of he's a bigwig and he's presenting to other bigwigs because they made a point of showing like, you know, smart older people at the front of the audience nodding sagely and rubbing their chins and stuff and laughing at his jokes but then it also it was interrupted all the time by goddamn little students yeah with questions during yeah. the, during the talk yes yeah and and one of the questions is here is it scientifically proven someone has a question <laughs> about 2 minutes into his talk <laughs> and says sir is it scientifically proven to which he answers this is only my assumption, I admit. <laughs> he and should have then, said, Get out! <laughs> <laughs> so he's giving uh, uh, some sort of keynote slash lecture uh, thing where he's just basically making stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my assumption. I'm it's, not actually talking about anything that you can that I've published or Yeah. Oh, I don't know. And so yeah, obviously this the the meat of this talk is that what we can do when we have when we control different amounts of our brain. So um you know I've got the trans part of the transcript here. At twenty percent we can control our own bodies. I thought we could do that already. Mm. Okay, at 40%, you can start to control other people. <laughs> um, and what will happen if you can, if you can, uh, can use 100% of your brain? I have no idea, he says. Oh. <laughs> 
So basically, you know, the more percentage you're using, the more you can control, and it gets into, yeah, obviously you can control, you've got a bit of mind control to start with, then you can start to control objects, and then you can control um, physics, including time, and then you basically Mm. become a big blob of glue and then a USB stick. Yeah, so I don't really. Uh, it's it's an odd film for me because I, in many ways, I think it's you. Know, it's got good people in it, and its actual directing and its pacing and stuff feel mm. okay. You know, they don't feel terrible like lots of films. They just just feel awful because they were a mess somehow. But this one seems entirely let down by its stupid idea, its central stupid idea, which makes the whole film ridiculous, rather than that no one knew what they were doing, so the whole thing fell down. It's it's very easy to see what went wrong here, Um, which is something which we bemoan a lot, but it's just, it seems that for some reason, filmmakers find it very difficult to make stories about science. Mm-hmm. And I think this is because the central message of science is not narrative. It's not a story. And it doesn't fit well with drama. It's not that sort of thing. And I think it becomes, it's very difficult to write the classic sort of dramatic tension sort of stories that filmmakers want to write or film (laughs) and have it based on good decent science i think it is just harder and uh and i wonder how many stories you can make out of science maybe it's just compelling stories that lots and lots of people want to watch rather than just sort of science fiction um buffs who are interested in the scientific ideas hard Mm. science fiction buffs anyway um i think there's something fundamentally wrong here and i think that's i don't know whether i don't know whether we'll ever get to the stage where Filmmakers are making good stories about science. Well, I would combine that with the fact that the people that do write these stories or come up with a desire to write the stories also do not seem to know the first thing about, you know, what is not just realistic. And uh, when I say, I want to say realistic, but I don't mean realistic in terms of like nerd points. I mean, just in terms of just like, the way the way things things actually work we we see scientists portrayed in movies saying things that like are just like not close to science they're just like airy fairy kind of like he so morgan freeman's character yeah he's talking about i'm presenting an intuition or like i'm presenting something that's just an idea well if you were doing that as a scientist there's nothing wrong with with doing that with saying that this is this is a pet idea but you would frame it as such you would have you would you would make a point of saying now let me speculate for a moment yeah. or now i want you to imagine here that we knew this then we might say this you know um it just seems that there's this they kind of understand your writers and directors and so on understand that there's this concept of um um like science speak you know techno babble but they don't actually know not the first thing about what you can actually say when you do have data 
or the fact that you have to have data in the first place before you say things. It reminds me very much of the way um, Scully's character talks in um, the X-Files as well. There's these bits in the X-Files where she does these little bits to tape after she's done an autopsy or something. And rather than making a series of observations and then coming to a conclusion at the end, she doesn't. She, like, waffles in very flowery fashion about, you know, as if, as, as like a poet would, yeah. which, which just is, was always just one of the main, there's so many things in the X-Files where people say stuff that's clear, just techno babble, you know, science nonsense. And, and it struck me that much of what, you know, Morgan Freeman's character said, said as well was, was much, was much the same. And, and the way, you know, things like what, what we just said about presenting, presenting at a conference, presenting research. Um, there's a bit when, there's this fundamental ignorance about how that's done, and it does make a difference to how these stories are told. So Lucy goes online and um, and looks at Freeman's character, whatever he was called, Doctor Brainiac, whatever. What was his name? I don't know. You find that out while I'm talking, right? No, I think she, I think she, we call him Doctor <laughs> Professor Man. Doctor Professor Man. Yeah. He um he she goes online and looks at all his research. And and if you look carefully, at, she's reading like you know she's reading like a hundred pages a second or something. Every single one of them is like a. If you look really carefully, hmm. none of them. There wasn't one technical paper in there. <laughs> they were all um, news news online news things online news things. Right. Oh so, yeah! Wow. So yeah, they don't. Yeah, they didn't so, know that technical papers existed. Yeah. yeah. Plus, she's saying that she's just read all of his research. Wait a minute, a scientist of. He's a man of, I don't know how old Morgan Freeman is, he's 60-something, isn't he? But, so what, someone at that point in his career is putting all of his research online for free to anyone. Mm. So, okay, you could say she's super intelligent and she's, like, hacked into some yeah, university library. Hacker. and yeah, yeah, she's a super hacker, and she's, but she wasn't looking at PDFs and the whole, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, like, a minor irrelevance, but... Um, no, but I think it is interesting because, yeah, okay, so someone said to someone, okay, show, show, him, show her looking through research, and they didn't know... That research is scientific papers, not news clippings. Yeah, I think that is interesting. I think that is a common misconception. People don't know that there's such a thing as scientific literature. Um, but on the artistic, I agree with all that. I think that yeah, there's this sort of just the realities of what science is socially in the real world uh, never reflect or very rarely reflected, which I find it is, is really frustrating, especially considering what proportion of the audience is probably going to be involved in the sciences in some way, right? I, mean, mm. I think it would be a fairly large proportion would at least be familiar with the way real science works um, if they're not scientists themselves. Uh, I, I think that it's it's quite strange. Uh, it's got to do with the way, I guess it's the way the world splits up into arty people and sciencey people. But what I don't like about a lot of these sorts of films is it's clearly trying to make some sort of point. It's trying to make some sort of, uh, you know broader, more sort of spiritual point about what science means in our lives or something, you know, sort of this post post-religion type world, I think is what it's meant to be about. Right? What are we what are we now? What are we talking about? Which is why, you know, going back to Lucy and putting the finger on the Yeah. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and and I just think you're failing artistically. You're not getting the most basic stuff of what is interesting about what we've discovered about the world, that it's really big and most of it seems irrelevant to people. It's not here for us. Yeah. And that um, 
narrative stories don't work. They're not what the way the world works. And I would, and I want to see, I think it's an artistic failure to not recognize that and do nothing with it. It's a huge artistic failure. It's not interesting. I'm sorry, this little fantasy about being our own god and turning into a bunch of gloop and then a USB stick, it's <laughs> not telling me anything about, well, the kinds of struggles people have in real life about what science is, te- what science is telling us about mm. ourselves, mm. right? Um, it's not helping with any of that. It's not telling us anything. It's not interesting. It's stupid. Um, and I think... That's what makes me cross about a lot of these films. I could forgive certain conceits because all science fiction often needs some sort of thing to be wrong to make the thing work, right? It's just, it's too hard to make a story where everything is correct and yet you end up with this great big science fiction fantasy because, well, if it was all right, then we'd know how to do it. We'd we'd know how to be (laughs) sailing around the universe in great big ships and stuff like this. So... You do need to throw a little bit of science out sometimes, but I think they're failing on the basic message, which makes me cross. It's an artistic I, failure, not just yes, a knowledge one. I completely agree. So, so Hollywood, when are you going to give us your money? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tezu Podcast Studios. <laughs> yeah. Annual turnover of $27 trillion. Yeah, dollars. Just, just give us three hundred million dollars, and we'll yep. do a make podcast. Good mo- well, <laughs> no, make good movies, you. <laughs> no, dolt. it's way too much work, Darren. <laughs> I love working with those Hollywood people. <laughs> um. So yeah. So okay. okay. Well, the, I th- so for once, John and I more or less agree on the merits of a film or lack thereof, and. Uh, so, uh, and if anyone disagrees with us, let us know, even though you're probably wrong, you disagree. <laughs> so we've previously given films stars out of five, and then we switched to giving them stars out of 10. Yeah. So today we're going to give them stars out of 20. So what do you reckon? No, no. What do you reckon? Out of five, 10, I don't know. Uh, 10 gives a bit more because when you need five, I think I need half points. Yeah. Okay. Um, so out of, out of 10. Out of 10, I'm going to give it a five. I, what? Five? Yeah. Because the main problem was one aspect of the film. He's so inconsistent. What? What was the last film we spoke about? Planet of Rise of the Planet, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. And you gave that three out of ten. And you yeah. gave Lucy well, five. I'll tell you why. Because it was both stupid and sexist and boring. You're, you're talking about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Stupid, sexist, and boring. Whereas I found this one just stupid. So there we go. I'm going to give it an extra two stars for not being sexist. Well, not particularly. And not being boring. I wasn't bored. I never think it's good when a film ends and I just look at the people around me and go, no. Well, no. (laughs) Five is a... Well, yeah, okay. No, that's a good point. Five is sort of... I'm thinking more in terms of IMDb ratings. Yeah, four. It's well below average. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm giving Lucy three because okay. I thought it was a big pile of crap okay. <laughs> and it shouldn't have been made in the first place. So that's... There you go. It shouldn't have been made, so I thought it was rubbish. But I look forward to seeing it again. <laughs> <laughs> you bought it on DVD. <laughs> bought it on DVD. <laughs> yeah. 
to want to see it that much. I just do not understand. You love bad know, films, don't you? I don't, you I like don't watching care. bad films. Films it's, you think are bad. I know, it's weird. It's yeah. very strange. So I Except also watched... Noah. Would you watch Noah again? No. No. I wouldn't watch it again, because that was really boring. Yeah. Um, I'd watch... No, no, no. I watched a movie the other day called The Darkest Hour, and that was just awful. But I still had to watch to, to know what happened at the end. And also I watched a thing with Johnny Depp called... Um, it's where he turns into, like, a computer sort of lawnmower man-style character and invents... Transcendence, thank you. Yeah. It's called Transcendence. And... That's pretty bad as well. And uh, Morgan Freeman plays, again, himself in that as well, <laughs> but yeah. as Professor Science Man. Professor exactly Science the same character Man. as he does in, in Lucy. Is so, it yeah. as bad? It's not as bad as Lucy, Yeah, but it's pretty bad. I mean, he's particular pre- Professor Science Man. No, he doesn't say anything near as terrible as he does in Lucy. Mm. Um, yeah. Right, okay. Then. Let's wrap this up. Yeah. Um, so we have. Oh, you, you know enjoy- what I forgot oh, to say. <laughs> yeah. Please continue. Yeah, it's um two years, two years, two years. Uh, the podcast is two years old. It was two years Mother old on the first. Two years of podcasting. Mm. Wow. And uh, episode thirty-nine. So the next one is the big four zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> Not that, that means anything to me personally, <laughs> right? So, if you listen, if you're listening to this web to this podcast, go Pod-carts. to podcasts. <laughs> I had the same thing happen again today. I said, I said on Facebook, I'm going to be doing the new podcasts, and the first comment that comes in, I'm not going to say who it is. That one embarrassing. The first person commented, "What exactly is a podcast?" <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> "Exactly what I said, Jim." <laughs> um, so. Check out, go to tetzu.com to listen to this podca- podcast and another 38 episodes. And uh, some of the early ones are really terrible, though. We should, like, delete them or something. I don't think they're terrible. Oh, they are. They're not like the later ones, but they're, they're, well, they're a bit like them. Yeah. Um, Tetzu Wiki Project is going really well. Um, keeping on Tetzu Wiki. Thank you to Cameron and other people who contribute. If you are interested in contributing, then please help with the keeping the spam down. Christ, the number of spam accounts is just terrible. Have you put those um, transcripts up yet? Yes. <laughs> right. Thank you to Mark the Fish, I think is the correct name for that. Um, our friends Alberta Claw and John Termel produced the Tet Zoo Time webcomic, which is at comic. Time.tetsu.com Have you seen the latest episode? It's really good. Yes, the giraffe one. The giraffe one, that's great. I love it. I like all the little cameos and stuff from uh, Rebecca Groom uh, of Paleo Plushies and um, Gaffer Mondo, Gareth Mondo. Paleo Plushies TM. Paleo Plushies TM and um, uh, Gareth Monger um, of what's his paleo art site called? Uh, Terraforma. Oh, good one. Glad you know all that. Okay, so yeah, they both. I'm sorry, I don't know the URL, but I'm sure if you just search for that, that's Tero spelled as in Terrasaur, former. Yeah. Um, So that's Tetsu Time. Um, Ethan Kosak, uh, aka the Black Mud Puppy, he's used to produce a new Tetsu comic sometime soon, and that is at comic.tetsu. That's right. 
<laughs> okay. Um, if you're interested in the content I produce for the giant book that I'm still working on, um, then please support me at Patreon. I have a Patreon site, which is at patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. And thank you very much to the people that support me. I sell tetzoo-themed T-shirts at the Redbubble Tetzu shop, which is at redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash tetzu. If you're interested in any of the stuff that John and myself talk about, you might be interested in buying our books, which include all yesterday's, which is about science and speculation in paleontology and cryptozoological volume one, which is about some sort of cryptozoology volume two. As soon as you finish that book about every fossil vertebrate. Yeah, it's going well. Plus, I got, like I say, three other books to finish this year. Uh, I tweet at patience for the Jedi. It is time to eat as well. Eat, eat, hot, good food. Mm, good. Mm. <laughs> at Tetsu. And also blog at Scientific American. Tetrapod Duology is the name of the website. That'll do. What about you? <laughs> right. Okay. Right. I have a website. It's at johnconway.co. I have a blog, or as I call it, a log which is at log.johnconway.co. That's that's a Tumblr blog, so if you're on Tumblr, you can follow me. Um, I tweet at at Nick Deterris, or Nick Deterris. Um, if you can't spell that, go to my website, which is johnconway.co, as I just said, and look for the link. Uh, I'm on Facebook. And I still don't have my Patreon site set up, but I will one day. What a slacker. What a slacker. Well, I decided to do, be too fancy with the video, and maybe I'll just abandon all that and just say, give me money. <laughs> yeah, that really works. I've noticed people love that. Yep. Okay. I just That's it. Find another, oh, I was going to find another bat fact. Bat fact. Bat fact to bat end. Bat fact. The weird structures on the noses of many bats have nothing to do with echolocation. They're handicaps. Also used for species recognition. Yay! Yay! Um, Hashtag bat fact. <laughs>